Chapter 39 of Max by Catherine Cecil Thurston. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Chapter 39 Rapture gilded the world. Rapture trembled on the air like the vibrations of a chord struck from some celestial harp. Coming as a divine gift, the first autumnal frost had lighted upon Paris. During the night, fainting August had died, and with the dawn, golden September had been born to the city. Blake, waiting at the foot of the Cour la Reine, consumed with anticipation, drank in the freshness of the morning as though it were a draught of wine. Maxine, crossing the Place de la Concorde, lifted her face to the sky, striving to quiet her pulses, to cool her hot cheeks in the wash of gentle air. Her hour had arrived. None could hinder its approach, as none could mar its beauty. She scarcely recognised the earth upon which she trod. The fierce excitements, the melting tenderness of her moods, warred until emotion ran riot, and the sifting of her feelings became a task impossible. She passed the spot where, eight months earlier, Max had saluted the flag of France. Her heart leaped. Her glance, flying before her, discovered Blake waiting at his appointed place, and all her wild sensations were suspended. The violently beating heart seemed to stop. The blood moved with a sick slowness in her veins. It seemed impossible that she should go forward. And yet, by the curious mechanism of the human machine, her feet carried her on, until Brake's presence was tangible to all her senses, until suspense was engulfed in actuality, and joy was singing about her in the air, a song so triumphant, so penetrating, that it drowned all whispering of doubt, all murmurs of to-morrow or of yesterday. Tears welled into her eyes. Her hands went out to him. Standing in the full light, she was a tall, slight girl, fastidiously, if simply, dressed, veiled, gloved, shod as befitted a woman of the world. And as he gazed on her, one thought possessed Blake. She, who typified all beauty, whose presence was a fragrance, had called to him, chosen him. All the romance stored up through generations welled within him. He would have died for her at that moment, as enthusiastically as his ancestors had died for their faith. Catching her hands, he kissed them without a thought for passing glances. Princess! The sound of his voice went through her. She laughed to break the sob that caught her throat. She looked up, unashamed of the tears trembling on her lashes. Monsieur Ned? Or why the monsieur? Why the princess? They both smiled. Maxine. Mon ami, mon cher ami. It thrilled her to the heart to say the words. She glanced at him half fearfully, then broke forth afresh, lest he should have time to think. Ned! "'Tell me, it is true all this? "'I am not asleep, it, it is not a dream?' "'He pressed her hand. "'Look round you, it is morning.' "'Her lips trembled. "'She obeyed him, looking slowly from the cool sky "'to the tree-tops where the heavy leaves "'were still damp with the night's frost. "'Yes, it is morning,' she said. "'We have all the day.' "'Watching her intently, he did not add, "'as would the common lover, "'We have many days.' She seemed to him so beautiful, so naive, that her words must compass perfection. "'We have all the day,' he echoed. "'How shall it be spent?' Then she turned to him, all graciousness, her young face lifted to the light. 
"'Ah, you must decide. I do not wish even to think. The world is so, how do you say, enchanted.' He laughed in delight at her charming, pleading smile, her charming, pleading hesitation. He caught her mood with swift intuition. "'That's it. The world is enchanted. Away behind us is the dreaming wood. What do you say? Shall we go and seek the sleeping beauty?' She nodded silently. He was so perfectly the Blake of old, the Blake who understood. "'Then the first thing is to find the magic coach. We must have nothing so mundane as a carriage drawn by horses. A magic coach that travels by itself.' He signalled to a passing automobile. "'Drive to the Pré Catalan, and drive slowly,' he directed. He handed her to her seat with all the courtliness proper to the occasion, and they were off wheeling up the long incline toward the Arc de Triomphe. They were silent while the chauffeur made a way through the many vehicles, past the crowds of pedestrians that infest the entrance to the bois. But as the way grew clearer, as the spell of the trees, of the green vistas and glimpsed water began to weave itself, Maxine turned and laid her hand gently upon Blake's. "'Mon cher, how good you are!' He started, thrilling at her touch. "'My dearest!' "'Good? In coming to me like this?' He caught her hand quickly. "'Don't,' he said. "'Don't. It isn't right from you to me. You never doubted that I'd come. You knew I'd come.' "'Yes, I knew.' "'Then that's all right.' He pressed her hand. He smiled. He reassured her by all the subtle, intangible ways known to lovers. And it was borne in upon her that he had altered, had grown mentally in his months of exile, that he was steadier, more certain of life or of himself than when he had rushed tempestuously out of Max's studio. She pondered the change, without attempting to analyse it. A deep sense of rest possessed her, and she allowed her hand to lie passive in his, until all too soon their cab swept round to the left, sped past a bank of greenery, and drew up, with a creaking of brakes, before the restaurant of the Pré Catalan. Everywhere was light, silence, and, best boon of all, an unexpected solitude, a solitude that invested the white building with a glamour of unreality and converted the slight-stemmed, moss-grown trees into spellbound sentinels. "'Here is the castle,' said Blake. "'Look, even the waiters doze until we come to wake them.' He handed her to the ground, gave his orders to the chauffeur, and as the cab disappeared into some unseen region, they mounted the wide steps. "'Monsieur Desert's déjeuner?' A sleek waiter disengaged himself from his brethren and came persuasively forward. At this early hour everything at the Pré Catalan was soft and soothing. Later in the day things would alter. The service would be swift and unrestful, the swish of motor-cars and the hum of voices would break the spell. But at this hour of noon Paris, for some obscure reason, ignored the fruitful oasis of the Boa, and peace lay upon it like balm. "'How charming! Oh, but how charming!' The exclamation was won from Maxine as her glance skimmed the palms, the glittering glasses and the white table linen, and rested upon the spacious windows that convey the fascinating impression that one whole wall of the room has been removed, and that the ranged trees outside with their satiny green stems actually commune with the gourmet as he eats his meal. "'It's what you wanted, isn't it?' Blake's pleasure in her pleasure was patent. Every look, every gesture manifested it. "'It is wonderful,' she said gently. "'Good. 
And now what is the meal to be? Dragon's wings or casserole? Or moonbeams surprise? She laughed, and a flash of mischief stole through the glance she gave him. What do you say, mon ami, to poulet bon femme? She watched for a gleam of remembrance, but he was too engrossed in the present to recall the trivialities of the past. He gave the order without a thought, save to do her will. Delay was inevitable, and while the meal was in preparation, they wandered into the open and visited the farm at the rear of the restaurant, conjuring the farm-like traditions of the place after the accepted custom, entering the sweet-smelling shadowy cowshed, stroking the sleek, soft-breathing cows, amusing themselves over the antics of the monkey chained beside the door. It was all very pleasant. The illusion of Arcadia was charmingly rendered, and they returned, happy and hungry, in search of their meal. That meal, from its first morsel, was raised above common things, for was it not the first time Blake had broken bread with Maxine? And what true lover ever forgets the rare moment when all the joys of intimacy are foreshadowed in the first serving of his lady, with no matter what triviality of meat or bread or water or wine? The points of the affair are so slight and yet so tremendous, for are they not sacramental, a typifying of things unspeakable? No intimate word was spoken, but at such times looks speak, more poignantly still, hearts speak, and their gay voices as they laughed and talked and laughed again, held notes that the ear of the waiter never caught, and their silences vibrated with meaning. At last the meal was over. They rose and by one consent looked towards the spacious world outside. "'Shall we go into the gardens?' Blake put the question. Maxine silently bent her head. Softly and assiduously their sleek waiter bowed them to the door, and they passed down the shallow steps into the slim shadows of the trees, as they might have passed into some paradise fashioned for their special pleasure. It was a place, an hour, removed from the mundane world. Passing out of the region of the trees they came upon a shrubbery, a shrubbery that enclosed a lawn and flower-beds. And here— by grace of the gods, was a seat where they sat down side by side, and gave their eyes to the beauty that encompassed them. It was an exotic beauty, yet a beauty of intense suggestion. Summer lay lavishly displayed in the shaven lawn, the burdened shrubs, the glory of flowers. But over her redundant loveliness autumn had spun an ethereal garment. No words could paint the subtlety of this sheath. It was neither mist nor shadow, it was a golden transparency spun from nature's loom, the bridal veil of the young season. "'How exquisite!' whispered Maxine, as if a breath might break the spell. "'Look at those yellow butterflies above the flowers. They are the only moving things.' "'It is the place of the sleeping beauty, sweet. It is the place of love.' Blake took her hands again and kissed them. Then, with a gentle enveloping tenderness, he drew her to him, looking into her face, but not attempting to touch it. "'My sweet, I have come back. What are you going to do with me?' She did not answer. She lay quite still within his arms, her half-closed eyes lingering on the garden, on the white roses, the clustering mignonette, the hovering yellow butterflies. "'What are you going to do with me?' She lifted her eyes, dewy with the beauty of the world. 
Wait, she whispered. Oh, wait. I have waited. Ah, but a little longer. But my love, my dear one. She stirred in his embrace. She turned with a swift passion of entreaty, putting her fingers across his mouth. Ned, Ned, I know, but do this great thing for me. Shut your eyes and your ears. Forget yesterday. Think there will be no tomorrow. Hold this one moment. Give me my one hour. She pleaded as if for her life, her body vibrating, her eyes beseeching him, and his answer was to press her hand harder against his lips and to kiss it fervently. He gave no sign of the struggle within him, the doubt that encompassed him. Something had been demanded of him, and he gave it loyally. "'There was no yesterday. There will be no tomorrow,' he said. "'But today is ours.' It was the perfect word, spoken perfectly. Maxine's eyes drooped in supreme content. Her lips curled like a pleased child's. "'Ah, but God is good,' she said, and with a child's supreme sweetness she lifted her face for his kiss. End of chapter 39